Hello, everyone. I'm Paige Smith with After School, a podcast project from Simon Fraser University's Faculty of Communication, Art, and Technology. After School showcases FCAT alumni in traditional and unconventional career paths across communications, interactive art and technology, contemporary arts, publishing, and digital media. We would like to respectfully acknowledge the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, Katsi, Coquitlam, Kakat, Kwantlen, Semiama, and Tawasin peoples whose unceded traditional territories our three campuses reside. In today's episode of After School, SFU School for the Contemporary Arts student Andrea Izil Galiendo speaks with Milton Lim, a digital media artist, game designer, performance creator, and alumna of SFU School for Contemporary Arts. They discuss the shifting of personal trajectories while moving to a new campus how to shift and expand understandings of decolonization in slow-changing institutions, and the challenges of balancing multiple art projects at once. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, my name is Andrea and I will be your host. In today's episode, I will be talking to Milton Lim. Milton is a digital media artist, game designer, and performance creator based in Vancouver, Canada. His research-based practice entwines publicly available data, interactive digital media, and gameful performance to create speculative visions in candid articulations of social capital. His work challenges standard performance traditions, including duration, linearity, and repeatability. Milton holds a BFA in the theater performance and Psychology from Simon Fraser University. He has created works for and performed in various international festivals and venues, including the Push International Performing Arts Festival. He's currently a co-artist director of Hong Kong Exile, an artistic associate with Theatre Conspiracy, a key archivist with VideoCan, and one of the co-creators behind the Cultural Capital, the performing arts economy trading card game, and a sessional instructor for Simon Fraser University School for the Contemporary Arts. Welcome to this podcast and thank you so much for agreeing to come on and have a little chat with me about um, what you've been up to and your experience at SFU. If you want to say a few things about yourself. So my name is Milton, pronouns he, him, and uh, I am um, an alumni of Simon Fraser University of the Theatre Performance Program. I graduated from the school in 2012 with a degree, a, a dual degree in psychology and theatre performance. What? made you choose SFU? What was attractive about the SFU theater program that just made you decide to come here? That's great because I actually, I didn't choose SFU's theater program at first. Um, I came to SFU for philosophy and psychology, mostly because oh, wow. um, I, I, I did musical theater through high school. And I think a lot of people um, kind of who landed at SFU at the time, I kind of found themselves kind of falling into the program uh, and as as I kind of reflect on it now, I think that the, the reasons why I chose the school, not just the School for the Contemporary Arts, but the school more generally, was because um, I grew up in Port Coquitlam. So it was very easy to be a commuter, and SFU is known for being a commuter school. People kind of come from the Tri-Cities and surrounding areas. Um, and so it felt very easy. And I didn't apply to too many universities because I tend to be the kind of person that will make whatever I want to make wherever I go. And... Uh, when I was in, at the end of my first year, I decided to take a theater course 
and I kind of fell back into it really hard. Um, I was really in love with the kind of rigorous teaching style that I had through one of the sessional teachers, Carrie Jo Hoffman, uh, who was teaching a lot of Suzuki training at the time. Um, and I just interviewed my uh, one of my main professors that I had at SFU for a class that I was teaching a while ago. And um, the way that she describes it, I think is beautiful because it sums up that she's always she at the time was always trying to train people to have the necessary tools as well as having um, space to cultivate a vision, whatever that might be. And it doesn't have to adhere to theater practice. Uh, it could be whatever that is. And that certainly held up for me. Uh, so it felt like there was a very long term kind of trajectory that I was being set up for. Um, so in a very kind of long circuitous process, those are all the things that made me choose SFU um, before I knew that it was a choice. I I definitely relate to that because I I'm from Coquitlam and I just applied to SFU and I that was like my only thing I didn't do any backup I was like it was really dumb of me now but that I think about it but philosophy wow I I, I dropped I, 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 I stopped the philosophy I didn't like my first year there I think if I continued on I would have found ah. things that I really liked but yeah the the kind of I had a I had a bad incident with a teacher in my first year philosophy class because I just didn't really like the teaching style. Um, I'm sure oh, okay. other people gravitate towards it, but it was very kind of fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that did philosophy a disservice. And so, um, right. yeah, my, my teacher at the time for theater for uh, Carrie Joe, um, was doing psychosomatic psychology at the time. And so it just kind of really mm. fit in with things I was interested in. And then you said that you had a dual major cause you didn't went into psychology. Yeah. So I guess for anyone who's going to the school now or will go to, um, I was in the transition years. So my first Two and a half, three years were spent on Burnaby Mountain when the portables used to be there. And then I was part of the first ever transition over to the new school downtown. Um, so we got to break all the rules and kind of <laughs> have not the current enforcement of what you can and can't do at the schools because of us. Nice. Yeah, so th that was the kind of time that I was sitting in. And because of that, I got to do my psychology training for the first three years. I, I really went like all the summer semesters. I did four or five courses. Um, and, uh, I got my psychology out of the way and then I went downtown and it wasn't having to kind of do both campuses as some students Commute. do. You mentioned that your philosophy experience was not the best that made you want to move away from it. What was your experience like at the SCA and during your theater, um, degree? My experience was great. I, I, I was the kind of student that went full in to it. So, um, uh, mm -hmm. I was basically living at the school. Um, and so every kind of day I was there. And I think that's the truth for a lot of uh, the SCA students. Be forewarned for anyone who is thinking that it's a light course. It's uh, if you really care about it and if it's something that you want to do, most students um, will end up spending a, a copious amount of time. And there's that often made joke about like 10,000 hours for three credits or something. Um, and mm -hmm. it's just it's it's a different kind of demand. Um, and so. I, I loved it. I, I ran the theater student union for a couple of years um, and I student politics, uh, but also all the kind of things around uh, student led projects I was very invested in. Um, but there was ample kind of opportunity in order to cultivate a practice and different kinds of um, research outside of your, your like traditional classes. Um, I shouldn't say traditional, but your, your classes that you have to take. Yeah. And I tried to do as many of those as I could. And um it was a good time socially. I think that um, this the program, from what I hear, is changing now, uh, but it still very much is yeah. based around like cohorts or some sort of um, like the interdisciplinary aspect is such that in your third and fourth year especially you should be 
kind of breaking free from just theatrical practice or dance practice or film and just seeing like what are the interstitial places and I certainly felt that and I made a lot of lifelong friends uh, some of whom have been on this um, podcast apparently. <laughs> yes exactly um, so as opposed to expectations you kind of already knew what you were getting into because you started taking those theater classes before joining the program so you kind of knew what it was about did that expectation like hold on to like the rest of your degree or did it I don't know fluctuate I think that it it fluctuated I tended to not move through the program with expectations because it is such a like the theater program especially at the time was so devising focused so it's meant to be like whatever you bring into a room so I was able to bring in the psychology training and the interest that I had I was able to bring in the kind of um uh, love of uh, like kind of like animation or different frequencies of uh, of how we understand content to into the class and for that reason I feel as though my expectations for what the program would be never really landed in any substantial way to let me be disappointed or uh, adhere to what I thought it would be uh, instead I think I was pleasantly surprised all the way through as much by the program and the institution of the school as well as my my fellow peers um, and that continues if you're lucky it'll continue on after you're done at the school uh, and for me it did because I got to create a company with two of my collaborators who are from uh, dance and um, and music respectively Remy Sue and Natalie Tinian Gan uh, we made a company out of that and then we continued going and it felt as though the kind of play that we had cultivated around our practices and around our different disciplines which started to melt away anyway um, we're we're all kind of a continued exploration um, of our time at the school nice so I that kind of answers and like makes a nice transition for my next question would be was there anything in particular during school or like a big project that changed or shifted the path that you were going yeah I think during school there was my directing project in my final years I think my final year of school mm-hmm. um, and that was I direct I directed a Chinese operatic show uh, and I brought Natalie and Remy on. And that was kind of one of the first projects that we worked on as a company, uh, as a collective, really. We say company, but it's only a company on paper. It's more of a project-based collective. And yeah, that changed a lot of things because we were trying to give a lot of agency for the ways that we would um, allow our practices to manifest. And uh, at the time, the school was training for a kind of... Um, added process and Remy really brought into the room this idea of like the negative process mm. like what if you were to strip away parts of a uh, practice and then what would fill in that gap um, and so this has been more and more happening over the last almost decade since we've graduated where um, us individually and as a as a company will take things away from what we understand theater or dance or music to be or new media and then something else will fill that gap and in my practice I'll say that like, I don't work with trained performers anymore. Um, and I've really used a new media and like digital media practice to bolster that. Um, and a social practice as well. So audiences often fill that role of performing for each other, mm-hmm. usually in the format of games. Wow. That's really interesting. I never like thought about it that way. I'm interested to see how, because you mentioned that the theater program is changing and the dance from what I heard is also changing. So I'm thinking that the entire school is shifting. Um, to keep that interdisciplinary, but also move forward. And I think that concept of taking away and seeing what can be filled up with, that that's something I'm going to keep in my head. If it helps, I was recently on a Canada Council jury. Ah. And one, one analogy that they used, which I thought was a very beautiful one, and I think is so straightforward, is, uh, is your interdisciplinary practice 
multidisciplinary insofar as there's a fruit platter or is it a smoothie where you can't really tell oh. the different parts anymore um and i think that at the school they they often talk about it in ways that we should strive for the smoothie yes. and it's okay if you you want to be multidisciplinary uh but there are many times in which you'll find in different projects where someone says interdisciplinary but it turns out to be like ah i still want this to be a piece of theater or or dance or music um so those are always discussion points and i've been very fortunate to work with a lot of others for example ario kakpur who has um, been on this before uh he and I often talk about like, well, let's strip away so that it's less distinguished of what it actually is. And I feel like that's a right place to be. Yeah. To use the fruit analogy again. I love that fruit analogy and totally agree with the smoothie, like coming from Ascension and just doing all of these like dance shows, but that are meant to be or are labeled as multidisciplinary, but really is the dancers that are leading everything mm -hmm. and it's still a dance show. Um, I think that it would be helpful to bring that flip fruit platter and smoothie analogy into like every single discipline and just trying to see how we can shift these projects into more multidisciplinary like actual multidisciplinary work and not just you know dancers working with musicians and lighting designers right mm -hmm. that's awesome my next question kind of shifts the whole conversation a little bit towards um decolonization which i'm excited to hear what your thoughts are just kind of as at your time at SFU, if there was something that happened that you like really marked your moment there in regards to decolonization or if there's any like ju just your thoughts about it. It's a big totally. topic. <laughs> it's a very big topic. It's also really tricky mm -hmm. um, because of the kind of subtle and important line between like making it a metaphor or the performance of decolonizing versus uh, a larger kind of social and to a certain extent institutional gesture. Um, as we both speak on behalf of the institution. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but knowing that institutions are kind of slow to change um, and that students are really only there for a small section of it, uh, I think my thought goes back to like how are we learning about kind of within the, the things that are within our wheelhouse, like how are we learning about indigenous arts practices um, and um, is that through workshops and partnerships? And I went through the school at a time where it wasn't part of the conversation as much. Um, but being part of the larger sector and that being a very large kind of um, conversation that we're having, uh, I think that there are ways to kind of unveil the already existing ways that indigenous practices have already kind of worked themselves into the school. Um, and that's not exclusively about decolonizing, but to kind of center indigenous practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I often think about the kind of clowning training that I received. And it's not like red nose clown, um, although it can be. Uh, but in this one, like a lot of masks and then the red nose. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the Pochinko style of clowning, which I learned much later after the school, um, that it it's uh, known to be a very Canadian form because of its mixture with indigenous practice coming from trickster um, um, histories of, of art. And so um, even just kind of that learning in and of itself, I feel like opens up the kind of practice to understand it not just exclusively within a uh, colonized paradigm, but instead to see one that has already started mixing and interfacing with another. Um, and I feel like there are multiple ways to keep doing that, um, but also ways to look back on like, how has it already started to, to kind of grace each other? And um, yeah, so I don't have any like hard and fast, like this is how we solve it. Mm -hmm. Cause I don't think anyone does. No. Um, but, uh, 
yeah, there are things that are already there that I think are worth talking about. Again, the school is changing, uh, but even in so far as the students and the faculty, from what I've heard, it's very on the mind. Um, so I'm, I wouldn't be surprised as workshops and partnerships come in and just always asking, um, like, how how are we doing this uh, with in, in like good relations, um, and and also understanding the system, and maybe mm-hmm. to take a step back into the thing about games I was just mentioning. The thing I really appreciate about learning about uh, using games and teaching games as a kind of mode of performance is because it kind of really teaches a systems understanding. And as we talk about decolonizing, I wonder sometimes how much understanding we have of um, the kind of colonization um, project that has been going on and how it's leaked into different facets of how we not only exist within the world, but how we perceive the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I hope that um, there are ways that we can understand things through like systems and um, have a little bit more literacy with those things so that as we talk about decolonizing, we actually understand what that kind of means. Mm-hmm. And so that's a long answer. It's a- <laughs> There's something in there. No, there definitely is. And when you were saying that and started talking about the games, I totally went back to the stripping down and seeing what fills in the gaps that you were mentioning earlier. Um, especially with like all these practices, like we see them as like our practices, but then if we like strip down what they actually are, we see where they're actually coming from. And I think that that's something that it's, it's starting to get there at SFU, not gonna lie. There's like a little bit going on and it's particularly with my experience from specific profs that make sure that that's part of their teaching and part of their syllabus. And I definitely think that there needs to be a little bit more of, um, I don't know, I feel like students are feeling that this is being pushed onto them, which is pushing that conversation away. Like it's kind of being forced on them. So I'm like curious to see how we can make this happen without making others feel like they're being forced to which pushes more i don't know this is like a really long sentence but you know what i mean kind of yeah well i wonder especially for any of the especially undergrad but Mm -hmm. any of the students really for who don't come from canada and don't have the same kind of systems understanding of like or even histories and they, they don't bring that and they instead bring like for example when i went to singapore where my family is from for the first time and i walked into a room of a feminist book launch and then the first thing i heard was about chinese privilege and i was like oh no <laughs> now now i'm the oppressor uh and it's it's true like there's a kind of um larger conversation to have in terms of context and all those sort of things so i can understand for a lot of students especially international students mm-hmm. um that that conversation might feel a little bit forced um and, you know, there's a sort of um, flip that you could take in that of saying, like, well, you're here on these lands and to learn more about uh, the lands and but also the population and the people who are here. So it's very, very tricky. Um, and that's why it's always hard to come from an institutional standpoint, I think, mm-hmm. because I think more and more there's a growing distrust of institutions and of like larger kind of ideas like nationhood. Um, and at the end of the day, I think uh there there are certain things that we'll learn from this time um, and I'm excited to see kind of what your generation will look like mm-hmm. uh, as you kind of come out of school and have all these things in your in your toolbox and how you also think about art because um, we're just now at the I hope the tail end of a time where there's been so much art that 
Actually, I don't think it's the tail end. <laughs> I think it's going to continue. But there's so much work made in community engagement oh, yeah. kind of oriented ways, which um, I don't know how this like young artists and students feel about it, but as a, I guess I'm almost mid-career now, uh, <laughs> artists, uh, seeing the amount of grant applications um, and also artists now who, having written so many grants, will have, um, I guess, evaluated their art based on community engagement mm-hmm. uh, metrics just means to me that like there's a really... F- a real pull away from the art discourse, uh, which is scary for me. And that's something that I think um, a few of my projects, I made a card game about the arts economy. Um, I feel like I'm trying to kind of push back on that a little bit Mm -hmm. because I don't think that community engagement is bad, but I think that there are lots of not-for-profits that are much better at it. And I think that it can't be the only thing which we educate art by because that seems really dangerous, uh, almost utilitarian uh, for art. Um, But that's my particular stance. Anyway, I forgot the question. Now I'm just rambling. <laughs> no, no, no. That's great. And it's a lot to think about as I'm like hearing you talk. And it's just something that no- nobody has touched on before, which is like interesting with these podcasts. Like everyone has a different point of view and everyone brings a little bit a, a different thing to the table. So I totally appreciate you rambling. It's good to ramble because then you get all your Thank thoughts you. out. I'm just going to ask a different thing and move away from um, the colonization thing. And more towards mm-hmm. what you're doing now. You're in Toronto, but you're you're Vancouver based. I am Vancouver based, uh, but I tend to spend a lot of time in Toronto. I'm in a relationship, so uh, I kind of split the time. But also, a lot of my work has been traveling to Toronto, and it's one of the kind of Canadian um, urban yeah. hubs. Uh, so there are quite a few things <laughs> <laughs> that uh, kind of are on the go, and I think that's the truth for a lot of different artists. Um, off the top of my head kind of the biggest thing is I'm making a video game um, with my friend Patrick Blencarn, who's an, another graduate from the school. He did the MFA program. Uh, and he and I have been making something called Asses Masses since 2018. And it's a long-form video game, long-form for theatrical mm-hmm. standards, because it's meant to be played in front of an audience and by oh. an audience. So a controller will sit on stage, and it's about donkeys, and it's about leadership and labor and labor, or like play and labor. Uh, and yes, the audience has to almost like a big couch one at a time, come up and take turns playing this role playing game, which spans what will eventually be like six or more hours, um, as everyone kind of backseat drives. So it's like Twitch plays Pokemon, but inside of a theater. So that's one project, uh, continuously making the culture capital project, which is that card game where we interview a bunch of artists from across Canada. We, often travel and hold tournaments, but we make um, idiosyncratic versions of the card game from region to region as we go across Canada. Uh, We have a book coming out about that in 2023, supposedly, (laughs) but we got to write that. Um, And then also working on a national archive of Canadian documentation, performance documentation called VideoCan, which for any students listening, it's freely available and Uh, It's really trying to reflect on this idea that everyone has this documentation from their work that they save for marketing or for grant materials, but isn't really shared freely. And this idea that in the sciences, for example, if you were to have publicly funded research, which is what a lot of art is in this country, and then not share it back for everyone else, uh, it would be Mm -hmm. almost criminal. And that's ostensibly like that's kind of what's happening. Um, People have thousands and thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands sometimes, for these projects and then they have documentation that other people can learn from 
It's not necessarily, it's not going to try and replace Netflix and it's not going to try and replace the live version of something. Um, but in our case, we're just trying to create one web page that has all these shows from whatever time, full length productions that you can just watch and you can learn from. Um, and then we also have video commentaries, which are like DVD style video essays. Uh, Ario and his brother Arash were our first episode. So similarly, <laughs> first episodes um, where we do a long format, um, often three plus hours of them watching their own documentation, stop, start and say like, what's this gesture right here? This comes from Castellucci. This comes from my background in this um, and really having discussions that we never otherwise get to have. Um, so that's an ongoing project as well. So those kind of three things are what I'll mention. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's awesome. That last one, it's just like amazing because I feel like it gets lost, especially in the performance arts. You don't get, you know, uh, a recording of what you do and then it just kind of disappears slowly with time. But like to actually like sit down mm -hmm. and break it down and talk about it freely as you're watching Stop and Start, it's it's like a gem for people that are going into this um into the the path of performance and just getting to see what people before you were thinking about while making their projects and like that's just awesome and it's going to be available for it's yeah already. it's already online and so it's videocan.ca and i think there's already a, a, quite a few works on there we're in the midst of liaising with the different unions that kind of govern contractual agreements that a lot of, especially SFU grads don't adhere to those um, <laughs> kind of principles and protocols um, for, for some reasons, um, which I won't <laughs> mention it. It's, it's a large conversation, um, but we're in discussion with them because we do want to create a space for as much Canadian performance as much as possible, even if it is more traditional or something that we don't necessarily um, make ourselves, but we want to create space for it because it wants to be a national archive. Um, yeah, and it's hopefully not just the thing that people watch once in a while. It's like something you can bring into the studio and say, like, I want to reference this thing. Because as we were making that trading card game, we kept hearing from people like, oh, this has never happened before. And we're like, oh, but it's been done since right. the 80s. And so um, it's just that context. It's true. Like, if you're not in a city when the show is going on for a performance anyway, then and if and if it doesn't tour, then exactly. no one else gets to see it. Yeah. And so all that knowledge gets... Washed yeah, away. it just is a, it's into the existence. Just the few people that actually got to see it get to keep it. Yep. And not even keep it, but like some of them might even forget. I think that's going to be great to inform artwork from now on. How do you find the time to work on all these three? You're working on these three projects that you mentioned at once. The, these are the main ones. The main ones. ones. Yeah. So there's more. Um, yeah. <laughs> They're little ones. There are more. There are more. It's a struggle. Um, I, I always like to try and be very transparent about this. Uh, for anyone who wants to kind of uh, have as many fingers and like going into different projects, uh, it just means that you sacrifice a lot of things, whether or not that's kind of social life or um, in my case, I sleep. I don't sleep enough. Um, you know, th those are things that um, I think if you want to kind of r be as rigorous as you can, those are sacrifices that um, one... Uh, has the option to but often cases needs to make especially within the gig economy it's like well you can't really make a living off yeah. of just one project so you kind of have to work for someone else or at least two other people and if you're lucky uh, SFU is great because often it asks us to make work together and so instead of going out and auditioning for works you often cultivate a relationship and Ario and I have been in that instance before um, so yeah it's um, 
there's never enough hours in the day. And I've had some really hard conversations recently with my collaborator, Patrick, about like, well, what needs to give? Because we're trying to run two national projects and this other thing, which is like trying to be like indie game company, but we don't have those resources. So it really just means more hours from us. Uh, and things take as long as they need to take. But also there's a certain kind of time where you need to get it out of the door. Uh, there's no very clear answer to that either, other than... Um, just kind of chasing what you want to chase when you wake up and you're like, I want to work on this today. And um, some people need a lot more structure. Mm -hmm. In this case, I'm very lucky that two of my projects are big enough that I can work on them. Uh, it, it's not kind of mission critical time for like, I have two weeks of workshop, I need to do it now. Um, so that's a, that's a gift and a curse. And I think that you should always have something that you can wake up and work on without needing to rely on other people. And that's why I try not to work exclusively with performers anymore. Um, Cause I just found like a, a painter shouldn't have to wake up and wait for, wait for their paint to yeah. be ready. <laughs> right. Um, and so whether or not it's yourself or uh, some sort of program or um, even just dreaming and writing, I hope that uh, all the, all the people coming out of SFU will find what is now being called, I think like a post studio practice. It's like, I can't, I can't rely on having a studio. Mm -hmm. So like, how do I continue an arts practice outside of those circumstances? That was some solid advice right there. I'm wondering, <laughs> wondering if you have any other type of advice for anyone, I guess, coming into us a few or just about to get into like their last couple of years. I do. Um, I told this to quite a few of the students that I had the privilege of teaching last semester, the second year acting ensemble. What's <laughs> up? Um, and I was half joking when I said it this way, but I, I really mean it sincerely about this idea of you should be multi-classing as an artist or like you should have multiple things that you're learning. And um, if I had the chance to go back, I would have started um, doing more new media and like especially projection and interactive um, digital media design earlier. Because um, I think that it just teaches you a lot about your other practice and they kind of bounce off each other in really productive ways. Um, and then in that, negative approach that we were talking about i think it offers you a space to really reconsider like well what is the space in between as we consider interdisciplinary practice and so that could look like whatever it is but i hope that and i often ask any students that i'm teaching um, to bring in your own interests and mine particularly were video games and anime and i brought a lot of those kind of compositional elements into my theatrical practice and then it kind of transformed my theatrical practice uh entirely so uh yeah, those are kind of two things at once, which is bring in what you're interested in and don't worry about it being art. Art will mm -hmm. find itself. And then the other thing being multi-class and uh, break from just being one thing and in instead be at least two things at once. Yeah. No, this was great. Um, thank you again. I don't know if you have anything else to wrap up, but any, any last piece of advice, any last little bits that you n feel the need to mention? Uh, no, I think in terms of closing, I just want to say thank you for having me. Um, I'm always happy to um, kind of say sing my sing my praises about the school. Uh, I had a great time when I was there, and I think that it really kind of cultivated the the next few years, if not the next decade. And I'm just finding myself now continuously, especially since mm -hmm. I taught recently, coming back to the things that I learned and realizing that there it's still teaching me. Um, and I feel like that's uh, that's very lucky. Uh, so I'm very fortunate. I feel like I fell into a program at a time with the right amount of people and the right kind of people. Uh, and I certainly look forward to seeing how the kind of regional context of SFU uh, 
um, will change. And I'm watching very closely because I think that um, it's had such an impact already in the national and arguably international kind of mm-hmm. networks of art. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the students are up to because the times are changing and uh, I'm so excited to be uh, one small part of it. You can follow the SFU Contemporary Arts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you would like to sign up for our newsletter, you can go to contact us on the sfu.ca slash SCA website. If you're an alumni creating work, please visit the new submission form on the SCA website to let us know what you're up to. Thank you for listening. After School is a podcast project from Simon Fraser University's Faculty of Communication, Art, and Technology. This has been our conversation with Milton Lim, hosted by Andrea Ezil Galindo. The After School podcast is created by Tessa Arsenault, Emma Keeler-Duga, Stacey Copeland, myself, Paige Smith, and each of our student hosts. Next time on After School, we'll be hosting a conversation with Jordan Yep a junior product designer, podcaster, and alumnus of SFU's School of Interactive Art and Technology. See you next time.